0: We we'll hear the gospel reading from Luke chapter 19: 28 to 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Join me in prayer, please. Father God, Lord, we give you thanks and praise, Lord, for this day. Lord, we thank you uh, for Holy Week. We thank you, Lord, for... What you have done for us, Lord Jesus, Lord, we thank you uh, for the worship that you have brought us into this morning with your gathered bride here at Christ Community Church. And so, Lord, we pray as we open your word together, Lord, as we look at it, Lord, as we contemplate and ponder it, Lord, we pray, Father, that you would open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to see and to understand and to believe what you have inspired in your word. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm excited that Holy Week is finally here. I assume you all are, right? We all just sang and proceeded into the sanctuary in, in, in really excited tones. But, but also at the same time, and I was commenting this to Craig and Connor a few days ago, but Lent feels like this year for some reason that it has just flown by. Um, I don't know why, but to me it just it doesn't seem right that Lent goes by so quickly. Because there there are times where you, it's one of those seasons that you just do and you don't want to hurry up, right? You kind of want it to be over so that way you can, you know, break your fast completely and be done with it. But also you just, you it feels like it needs to last longer. But at the same time, some years it feels like we barely, and this year feels that way, we barely get into the practice of Lent and then it's just all completely over. But with Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday kind of gives us at least to me, this this false sense of celebration. Because we're finally to Holy Week, but Lent isn't over, right? We can finally celebrate, but just not yet. And I mean, because again, we, we parade into the sanctuary every Palm Sunday and we shout Hosanna and the mood is very festive, but then we come to Friday and the mood turns very somber. And so we, we end Palm Sunday with a reminder that it is absolutely a day of celebration, but our fast has to continue for a few more days. And last week, I began by kind of cheating a little bit, right, and doing a little bit of a recap of this major theme that we see in all the Lenten texts, this theme of, of response that we have seen this year. But this week, I noticed something during my study that I found interesting, that not only do we have a theme of response to each of these texts, but we actually have now sets of responses. We have Three sets of two in these responses. Those first two Sundays we had Jesus responding to certain things, right? His response to being tempted in the wilderness, or his response to uh, a distraction from the Pharisees and this quote-unquote threat from Herod. And Sundays three and four, it centered around the response of what repentance should look like, or a lack of repentance. And also this response of bearing no fruit. And then last week and this week, we have another set of response, but this time it directs its focus to Christ Jesus particularly to the worship of the Lord. Last week, we saw Mary's response of worship to him and then Judas's indignation over what he felt like was a waste of worship. And then this week, we have that similar idea that we have two responses to worship of Christ, one of worship, but also one of indignation towards that worship. But then something else jumped out at me this past week as I was looking at this. With, with Easter being really the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, his earthly work is done. We have in this text, we have Luke returning now to his use of book ending that he uses throughout his text, but also the importance that he, that he presses upon us with having two witnesses to establish evidence, to help point us to the truth of who Christ Jesus really is. And so most Palm Sundays, you know, we always end up focusing on the donkey and why Jesus rides a donkey and why he's coming down from the Mount of Olives and And all this stuff, but instead of focusing on the cult of a donkey or on Bethany and Bethpage and where they are in relation to Jerusalem and all this stuff, I thought we'd just focus our attention again, not only on this theme of response, but how Luke brings back once more, one more time, book endings and two witnesses in order to aid, hopefully, our Palm Sunday celebration this year. So so now that we've made this journey now with Christ in the wilderness and we've made this journey with him to Jerusalem... Let's look at one more example of two responses of worship to Christ or rather one of worship and one of indignation in order to help us hopefully properly respond in worship to Christ. And so first to, to first we look at this work, this response of worship to do this. We actually need to skip down most of the way in our text and just pick up in verses 37 and 38 where we see this response of worship from his disciples. It starts here. It says, and as Christ, as Jesus was drawing near, Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, so he's on the donkey, he's riding in. And we see Luke says, The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And what Luke does here, he gives us really a really interesting detail. And this first detail is just really simply a contextual one. In each of the four Gospels, this is one of those scenes in the ministry of Christ that we see in all four Gospels. But in each of them, Jesus is always accompanied by a a large crowd, a a great host of people. But in Matthew, Mark, and John, they only designate that it's a big crowd or a large crowd or, or that many. John uses the word many, and that's it. He doesn't designate anymore. But with Luke, it isn't... This isn't just a random group of people that decided to to jump in on the celebration because it was a fun day of a parade, right? It's not just these people jumping on the Jesus bandwagon here for for whatever reason. Luke notes for us here that while this crowd may have been very large, it was comprised completely of his disciples. Not just the twelve, but the entire multitude of those who have followed him. Now, this doesn't mean that there may not have been a random passerby by the time he makes it into Jerusalem that decided to jump in. But we have to remember that for Luke, like each of the other gospel writers, Luke has a very specific audience and a very specific thesis to his gospel. And he's very strategic in how he lays out his account of the ministry of Jesus. Because his purpose is to always give us evidence to point us to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. And so in this case, it's not Jerusalem that's celebrating the arrival of Jesus, but those who had already believed in him as the Messiah, as the Messianic King, that are shouting his praises. And we know this because we have already seen in Lent already, back in Luke 13, Jesus' lament over Jerusalem's rejection of him as the Messiah. On that second Sunday of Lent, we saw how the Lord, he not only laments over Jerusalem, but he speaks judgment against it. This is a kingly city. This is the city which should be raising up and welcoming its redeemer with shouts of joy and waving palm branches and throwing their cloaks on the ground. But instead, this city, it responds with indignation and it responds with rejection of him. And we'll see in a moment in the Pharisees' response, we see really them personifying the entirety of Jerusalem's response to its coming Messiah. But here in verse 37, we have the entire multitude of his disciples accompanying him into Jerusalem. And what's significant for us is that we who are also his disciples, we see what they're proclaiming about him and why they're proclaiming it. And this is what's significant for us. And so I want to look at the what they're proclaiming and the why they're proclaiming, proclaiming it, but I want to look at it in reverse because we're all very familiar with the what because we sing it every Sunday. But, but Luke tells us why they're all excited, why they're worshiping Jesus. And we see here in verse 37, it's because... For all the mighty works that they had seen done in Christ. And this brings us back then to our discussion since the very beginning of Epiphany, not even through Lent, but of Epiphany, where we see the significance of signs that John points us to in his gospel, of signs that Jesus had performed. Those in Jerusalem who were not joining in on this praise of Jesus, they had seen the mighty works, but they had not witnessed the signs that he had performed. And because they had not declared him as Messiah, they had not declared him as the Christ. They had not believed in him. Only disciples of the Lord Jesus can give this kind of worship and this kind of praise because they had seen the power of God working in the Lord Jesus. They had seen these signs and they had believed in him as the Messiah. And just for the sake of our own context, through Epiphany and now through Lent, Consider some of the signs that we have considered together even just through these Sundays. We've we've seen him turn water into wine. We've seen his abundance of the fish that he puts in Simon Peter's boat when he calls him to become fishers of men. We've seen this sign of his transfiguration. We've seen him heal the sick. We've seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. So only those who have seen these signs and who have believed are able to give this type of response of worship, this type of worship of the Lord Jesus. So that's why they're proclaiming this. But consider the what of their praise, because even though we're very familiar with it, Luke does give us some interesting details about their what they're proclaiming. In verse 38, he says this. They, they, they have seen these mighty works that, that Jesus had, had, had done And they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So consider a couple of things that Luke points out to us that really the other gospel writers don't. First, we have to consider this idea that this is called a triumphal entry. Now, I know that a few of us have had these discussions around Christ Community Church for a while now that maybe this really isn't triumphal because... A triumphal entry was usually held to herald a king that was returning in triumph from battle, right, from conquest. But we know that the Lord Jesus, the conquest is still looming, right? It's on the horizon, right? The cross is still on the horizon. The conquest of sin and of death and of Satan and hell, all of that is still yet to come. But there's another type of triumphal entry that historically has taken place. And in many ways, in a lot of nations even now, it still takes place, even if it might look differently. And we even do it here in our own nation, and it's called an enthronement entry, or what we would use, an inaugural entry. A king who wished to ascend to a throne, especially if it wasn't inherited, right, like if it was like an empire or something, he would present his credentials that would be proclaimed in order to proclaim him as worthy to ascend to that throne, I mean, think about how our own elections are supposed to work, right? We, we have we have candidates that are chosen based upon their credentials in order to hold the office that they are seeking. And then those candidates that are presented to the public for us to vote on and to vote on the one whose credentials we approve of more than the other. In the case of Jesus here, this isn't a, tri- a triumphal entry because the conquest hasn't occurred yet. This is an enthronement entry because... Jesus is beginning his process of taking up his throne, which will begin on the cross at the end of the week. And so consider even how our psalm for today points us to this truth. Psalm 118 is a royal psalm. It's a psalm that was recited annually at the enthronement anniversary of the king. The disciples' proclamation of praise here in verse 38 is lifted straight out of this psalm. In chapter 118, verse 26. So really, in a way, without fully appreciating what they're proclaiming, the disciples are proclaiming Jesus' enthronement as king. In verses 19 through 21 of Psalm 118, the psalmist writes this. He says, "'Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them, and give thanks to Yahweh. This is the gate of Yahweh. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation.'" By entering Jerusalem in the way that he has here on this first Palm Sunday, Jesus opens to us the gates of righteousness so that we may enter through him. And by his enthronement on the cross, we see that he has become our salvation. But I did promise you that Luke uses bookending again in this this passage, and it starts right here in these two verses. Remember, Luke, he uses this this idea of bookending to to use specific themes in order to point us to the truth of who Jesus is. And there's a particular aspect that the disciples proclaim here that that only Luke records. The other three gospel writers don't. Again, they proclaim here, they say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. We're familiar with that one, right? Because we, we read it in Psalm 118. We sing it on every Palm Sunday. But then Luke records this. They say, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Instead of proclaiming Hosanna, which we also sing, in which we see the other gospel writers writing, the disciples proclaim Jesus as the coming king of peace. The other gospel writers don't. But what Luke has done is he reminds us that there is another multitude that proclaims this exact same thing at the moment of his birth in Luke 2, where they say, where he writes, Suddenly there was with the angel... A multitude of the heavenly host who were praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. Now, for the second time in his gospel, Luke is stressing to us that a multitude is proclaiming Jesus as the coming King of Peace. The first time was to proclaim his birth and that the kingdom was at hand, but now, the second time, this multitude proclaims him as the King of Peace. As he is enthroned on the cross and he takes up his crown as the king of peace. And so by their shouts of praise, the multitude of his disciples, they show us here that the only right and proper response to who the Lord Jesus is, is to proclaim him not only as redeemer, but also as king. But like Judas last week, we see that not all respond to Jesus in this way, right? Not all respond rightly to who the Lord Jesus is. In a very real way, the Pharisees, again, they personify the response of all of Jerusalem, and in most ways, most of the nation of Israel. Because they respond to true worship, not with worship, but with irritation and with frustration and with contempt. Here in verse 39, Luke writes for us, he says, So the multitude of Jesus' disciples are worshiping him, and in the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees who were in the crowd, they say to Jesus, they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Luke, what he's doing again is he's differentiating between disciples and their right response and the rest of the people and their rejection of Christ. And he notes here in verse 39 that some of the Pharisees were in this crowd. So now we, we understand that a parade of a multitude of, of people that are shouting and proclaiming this royal psalm while a rabbi rides on a donkey, you, you, this is going to draw a crowd of people regardless of where you're at. And as we've looked at in years past on Palm Sunday, Jesus' decision to ride this donkey, it would have spoken volumes to the, to the city of Jerusalem. Which is why Matthew and John referenced the prophecy from Zechariah 9-9 that Craig read earlier in the worship service. Because Jesus identifies with that prophet riding on a donkey. And the significance of what Jesus was proclaiming about himself by this simple act of riding a donkey off the Mount of Olives and into Jerusalem would not have been missed by even the most run-of-the-mill Jew, much less the Pharisees, who happened to be in the crowd when he entered into the city. And so they recognize what Jesus is saying about himself, but even more so, they recognize this worship and what it is saying about what the disciples are proclaiming about Jesus. And the Pharisees command Jesus, they say, Tell your disciples to be quiet. And like Judas last week, the Pharisees' response, it's not one out of concern of right worship. It's not even one out of a concern over the proper observance of the law. But like Judas, their concern is over their, out of the concern of their own greed. One commentator I was reading, I, I, I loved what he said here because he captures, I think, the mood and the personality of the Pharisees really well. He called them cantankerous wet blankets— which is now my favorite insult ever. <clears throat> but, but then he goes on, and he, he calls them cantankerous wet blankets, and then he says this. He says, they have seen nothing of God in what Jesus has done, and they regard this messianic clamor as shocking and as dangerous. And so we have an understanding of their motive. We have an understanding of their fear. And every year we come, we come to this day, and we, we read one of these gospel passages and for me, I'm, I'm always shocked at their response to Jesus because I've been reading through the Gospels throughout Lent, throughout Epiphany, throughout Advent. Right? We, we, we've seen the signs. We understand who He is. We know that He is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited coming Redeemer. So why do they get so nervous? Why are they so afraid? Why, why, are, they, why are they cantankerous wet blankets? Well, it's because... This uproar is just yet another and a long line of things that Jesus has done that could take away their authority and their position among the people. Last week, we looked at John eleven forty eight, 48, and where John reminds us, the Pharisees say this. They say, if we let him go on like this, everyone is going to believe in him. And the Romans will come and they will take away both our place and our nation. So the, really, they're afraid of what Rome will do if they hear this worship of Jesus. But as much as they're afraid of Rome, they're more afraid of losing their own power and their own authority and influence among the people. Cyril of Alexandria, he really captures their motives well. And he writes this, he says, the Pharisees despised Jesus out of their great jealousy. But then, then he turns his comments and directly addresses the Pharisees. And he says this to them, he says, your duty was to join with them in their praises. Your duty was to follow the sacred scriptures and to thirst after the knowledge of truth. But you did not do this. All you wanted to do was to rebuke the heralds of the truth. But even in their rebuke of of Jesus' disciples, the Pharisees, they recognize the significance of what they're proclaiming. They recognize Psalm 118 for what it is. Because proclaiming Jesus as a king... For Rome was tantamount to rebellion against Caesar. This wasn't a little thing. This wasn't one of us just saying, we want you to lead us. It was saying, we are done with Rome. We're rebelling against Rome. But this was not only a rebellion against Rome. This was a rebellion for them, for the Pharisees, against the religious culture that they had become very comfortable with. The lifestyle that they had become very comfortable with. And they knew that this psalm had extreme messianic significance. But their issue, like the rest of Jerusalem, is that they had seen the miracles, but they did not perceive the sign. They did not believe. And so they tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples. They presume to command the king to tell his subjects not to proclaim him as king. And while Jesus had commanded his disciples previously to keep his identity quiet, now his hour had come, his hour was here, his enthronement was upon him. Their proclamation of his kingship is appropriate, and he gladly accepts it as the messianic praise that it is. And we see as much in how he replies to the, to, to the Pharisees here. In verse 40, they tell him, in verse 39, Rebuke your disciples, tell them to be quiet. And he says this, I tell you, if they were quiet, if they were silent, the stones are going to cry out. Now, here's where I really started to have fun in this preparation, because this was where it got really interesting, if it wasn't already interesting before. Because we've entered now, we've entered into Jerusalem with Christ. We followed with him through the wilderness, through his temptation. But now we're in Jerusalem. The cross is in the distance. We can see it on the horizon. We know that the resurrection is just right past it. But what we have now, we have all of these threads that we have been weaving from Advent Advent through Epiphany, and now through Lent, we have them all coming together as they shout and proclaim the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. And we need to recognize here that, like the Pharisees didn't, we need to recognize that silencing the bride of Jesus would not and never would negate the fact that he is the king. Nor will silencing the disciples of Jesus, whether in the first century or the 21st, it's not going to derail the purposes that God has laid out. And Jesus proclaims clearly to the disciples here, he says that if the to the Pharisees here, that if the disciples are silenced, then creation itself is going to open up its mouth and give praise to God and give praise to him for who he truly is. Psalm 19 even tells us this directly, that all of creation does shout and proclaim the glory of God. But Jesus' is warning to them in this verse And his judgment over Jerusalem is very clear here, just like it was in Luke 13. If those who rightly give praise are silenced, then the very rocks themselves are going to take up the task of worship. Bede is so helpful here. He points us, but he takes us and he points us forward to the resurrection or to the crucifixion of Christ. And he reminds us that at the moment of Jesus' death, the rocks do cry out. He writes this, he says, At the crucifixion, the multitudes were silent, and they were silent because of their fear. So, the very stones and the rocks spoke in his defense. And immediately after he expired, the earth was moved, and the rocks split, and the monuments of the dead opened. But here in Luke 40... I mean, Luke, Luke 1940, we're reminded he draws again upon this use of bookending, but then he brings us back to this use of two witnesses to establish evidence of the truth of the messianic claim of Christ. And what Luke does is he bookends now his entire record of Jesus' public ministry with a proclamation that God would use stones to proclaim the glory and the majesty and the inheritance of God. Through Christ. While baptizing in the Jordan, all the way back in Epiphany, John the Baptist proclaims to the Pharisees that from the very stones on the riverbanks, God would raise up sons for Abraham. And here, Jesus then proclaims that if the multitudes did not proclaim him as king, then the stones are going to take up the task. In a very real way, what Luke is doing is he's using stones to establish these two witnesses to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. But then he doesn't stop here. He takes it even further. Back up again to our psalm for today. In Psalm 118, in verse 22, we read this. The stone that the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. Now we know from multiple New Testament passages that Christ himself is that cornerstone that the builders rejected. And if Christ is the cornerstone, then logically it makes sense that there must obviously be other stones that are built upon the level foundation of the cornerstone that Christ is, right? Peter tells us this. He says, and as you, church, as you come to him, you are a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, you were chosen and precious. But you were like living stones, Peter tells us. You were like living stones. You are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so what Peter is doing and really what Luke is doing is they're, is they're telling us that the church, the bride and body of Christ, you and me, we are these stones. We are these stones. We are these witnesses, the ones that God has raised up both as children for Abraham and as those who cry out the kingship of Christ Jesus. And so now what we see is we see all these threads even from Lent and this idea of responses that we have seen throughout this whole season. We see them now being meshed together because we see that Christ, he resisted temptation and distraction. And we're reminded that we too, as these living stones built on him as the chief cornerstone, being built up as the spiritual house of God, just like he resisted temptation and distraction, we are to bear witness to Christ by not only resisting temptation and helping one another resist temptation, but by continuing to proclaim him as the king. But we we too, we're not to be like the barren fig tree. We are to instead to bear good fruit. We are to bear fruit in keeping with our repentance because we have been raised up as living stones for children for Abraham and who cry out the truth of who Christ is. And we too, like Mary, we are to pour out the entirety of our earthly inheritance upon the feet of Christ as our true act of worship and our true act of loving worship in order that we might gain Him as our heavenly and eternal inheritance. And so now, as we make our way through Holy Week, let's continue, let's continue to build one another up as living stones, as we bear witness to the glory and the majesty of Christ Jesus, refusing to be silenced. And let us respond to Christ with the honor and the glory due to his rightly kingly name. So blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest.